Less than a year into our marriage, I was 21, Shauna was 23. Looking back, we were just kids. We were broke as a joke, but who needs money when you have love, right? And somewhere in that time, uh, one day, once again, our polar opposite personalities led to a really intense argument over what I don't remember. Uh, But what I do remember is that the words and the intensity got to the point where I just knew that I needed to step away because words had already been exchanged that had just added to the anger and hurt, and it was only going to get worse if we stayed engaged in this argument. So I actually went to the bathroom. I shut the door. I lit one candle because I just wanted it to be dark in there. And I remember running the, the bath as, about as hot as I could stand it. And then I sat in there in the dark. I remember I was just sitting there hanging my head. And I thought to myself, I have made a horrible mistake. <laughs> what have I done? I never should have married Shauna. And I remember feeling trapped. I remember feeling frustrated. I remember feeling embarrassed. I had no idea how we were going to last another month, let alone a lifetime with this beautiful, infuriating woman. And Shauna was having her own doubts about me, and understandably so. And yet somehow, we worked through it and countless other conflicts that came. And here we are three decades later, more than that. And on this side of things, I can't begin to wrap my mind around what I would have missed out on, what I would have given up on, if I had given up in the moments where I saw no hope for a happy future because of our conflicts. She is, in fact, the second best decision of my entire life. The first being to entrust my life to the one who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection and invited me to follow him and how God used that faith and his spirit to help us navigate dynamics that end countless marriages. And I shake my head imagining what I would have given up or what we would have missed out on had I or Shauna ever given up because of the conflicts. Now, if you missed the previous two weeks, we're talking about family as a whole. And if you missed it, I strongly encourage you to go back and catch up because today I'm jumping in and we're talking about conflict in the family. One of the only things we probably all have in common when it comes to our families is there's conflict. Some level, we all fuss, we all fight. One of the other things that we have in common is that most of us, we have learned that when you win an argument in your family, you don't really win anything. Like, if you win an argument at work, like, high five, like you won the argument. If you win an argument in the courtroom or the boardroom, you know, there's a reward, you move on, things are good. But when you win an argument in the living room or in the bedroom, there is really no win, is there? Like, you may feel good, you may feel good because you out-argued the other person, but there really is no win. And here's what we all know, and that is that conflict in family is like conflict nowhere else. It's so complicated. It's so emotional. It just seems to go on and on. And part of what makes it so complicated is because we don't even process conflict in the same way in terms of other members of our family, right? Let alone anyone else. I mean, some of you, some of you are peacemakers. Peacemakers won't ever argue. They're just like, it's okay. It's fine. Is everybody fine? And if you ever had tried to have an argument or resolve a conflict, 
a peacemaker. It's a bit complicated because you have a hard time getting them to push back or be honest or to argue. It's like, if you're fine, they're fine. And you know they're not telling you the truth. Some of you are the sulker. Okay, you're just, you're like, you're just down. And even after the conflict is sort of resolved, it's like, are you okay? I'm fine. You don't seem fine. In the psychology of, the poo, of poo, maybe a little Eeyore, uh, there's the stuffer. Okay, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, everything's okay. Are you sure everything's fine? Yeah, I'm fine. Are you sure? Like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, I'm good. Uh, there's the bulldozer. Some of you are bulldozers. Uh, you tend to use the power of your personality and your ability to think quickly, to overpower with words and volume, and you just bulldoze to win the argument. Then there's the litigator. You're the attorney, and we have attorneys. I'm sorry about this, but you're the attorney. You're, you're like the best, best arguers. Like you just win. You're never wrong. In fact, if I were to say to you, you're just never wrong, are you? As humbly as you could say it, you go, well, no, I'm, I'm not. So if everyone would just think like me, it's because you're such a great arguer, and the rest of the people in your family, they just don't want to argue with you because here we go again. You know, you're going to win the argument. But then after you've won the argument, there's something in you that you just you know deep down you didn't really win anything. Winning the argument works in other scenarios, but winning the argument at home, you don't, you don't win anything. And odds are, if you're married, you married someone who handles conflict different than you. Peacemakers often marry litigators or bulldozers, okay? And if I were to know about your family of origin, the odds are how you were raised to handle conflict is very different than the person that you're in a relationship with. And then you add children to the mix. And we had four. And they came from the same set of DNA, and yet all four of them from childhood handled conflict differently. I mean, it's just amazing. Now, what we talked about last week and what we're going to talk about today are two of the most important things that families, if they can begin to wrap their brains and habits around, these are the most important because even though there are many, many people, uh, many, many versions of people and approaches to conflict, what we're going to discover today is that there is really only one source one common core source of conflict in family. And if we can identify it, acknowledge it, own it, and especially if everyone in your family begins to wrap their brains and their minds around this and their hearts around this one single idea, I guarantee you that the tension and the tone and the conflict level and the emotional level in your family will decrease almost immediately. You will have less conflict and you will have more peace. That's how powerful this is. And to help explain it, we're going to rely on Jesus' half-brother, James, because James, in a brief letter that he wrote to Christian 2,000 years ago, he introduces us to one of those most profound relational insights, and he does it through a question. He asks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? And I considered saying, why don't you turn to the person that you came with today or who is living in the house with you and just have a five-minute discussion on what causes fights and quarrels among you. But the problem is fights and quarrels would break out and we would have to just end. And the reason is, is because if you were to turn to your spouse or your teenager or your family member and say, hey, what causes fights and quarrels among us before it was over, you would be pointing at each other going, you, you are what causes fights and quarrels among us. And the reason we fight, fight and quarrel in our family, you'd say, is, well, because my husband won't do this, and my wife is always, and he's insensitive, and all she does is sulk around, and my kids won't do, they won't behave, and my parents don't understand, and my teenager won't clean up their room, and my sister's always using my stuff without asking my permission, and my brother is so lazy, and he won't shower, and you would go on and on and on, and, and we could point to all kinds of things, but the thing is, is our 
fingers would all be pointed outward and towards the other people and not in this direction. Because it, it, it's just, it's just, if everyone would just sit down and do what I tell them, things would go my way and there would be peace in my family. And we naturally, we naturally and immediately go into blame mode. But here's something you've already bumped into. As long as you blame others for your unhappiness, you'll always be unhappy. Even if they deserve blame. I get it. Some of us, including myself, have people, have family that can just rub us the wrong way. Yet every single time you begin to blame personally or you're telling your sad story to one of your friends or neighbors, it's him, it's her, it's them. Here's what you do. You take your happiness and you hand it to the person that you're in conflict with. I can't stand you right now, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my potential for happiness and you control it until you're ready to give it back because I can't be happy unless you allow me to be happy. Now when I say that out loud, it sounds silly. I mean, if I were to ask how many of you would like to give the control of your happiness to the person you're in conflict with, nobody would do that. But as long as you're caught in this death cycle of if you would, if you would, if you would stop, if you would start, if you would quit, if you, if you, what you're saying is, I can't be happy until you do something differently. And for those of you that would say that in this season of my life, and when it comes to my family, I'm, I'm unhappy. The chances are that you feel if someone would act differently, I would get my big capital H happiness back. And I understand this. I do. About 10, 15 years ago, I just, it finally clicked for me that deep down, I was blaming. I was blaming others for areas of my unhappiness. And every time I blamed, I gave away my happiness. And I don't want that for me, and I don't think that you want that for you either. So if you have your Bible, Bible app, you want to turn to James chapter 4, you can follow along. And as a heads up, at first hearing, you're going to push back. Like you're going to push back on James. You know, your knee-jerk response is going to be resist. And you may want to argue with me throughout the message, but just hang, hang in there to the end. This is not me, this is James. So be mad at him. So here's what he says, James 4.1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And he asks this question because the truth is, we think we know the source, but we don't which is why you struggle to seem to ever fully resolve conflict once and for all. It causes fights and quarrels among you. They, quarrels and fights, come from your desires that battle within you. He says, don't your fights, your conflicts, your quarrels ultimately come from something that is within you, inside of you? And we want to say, no. What causes quarrels and fights come from something inside of them. Like there's something that they're doing, something they've said or done or not said or done. And James says, there is a common source. There is a common root. The source of all your fights and quarrels is something inside of you. You desire. In every conflict with every person, there's a desire in you that is spilling out on the people around you. It always begins with something inside of you. And again, like me, you already want to argue with James, but he's not done. You desire, but do not have. There's something you want that you're not getting. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. Now, James is talking to church people, not people in prison, okay? This is hyperbole. It's, this is extraordinarily, extraordinarily relevant. He's saying sometimes there's things that you want so badly that you're willing to hurt people that you care about to get it. There are things that, that you, so to use hyperbole, he says, so you kill. 
And it seems like an exaggeration, but some of us, we've experienced this. Some of us have, have experienced this firsthand. Some of us have seen our parents kill, kill a relationship with one another because one wouldn't do what the other wanted. Maybe even what they deserved. One or both simply wouldn't or couldn't give it. Some of you have seen parents kill a relationship with their kids because their kids, kids wouldn't do what their parents wanted them. Some of them. Some of you, this is your story. That some of you left home at 17 or 18 or 19, maybe even earlier, because, and the reason you left home was you, you couldn't stand to be around your parents. And if I were to interview your parents who drove you off and killed their relationship with you, the bottom line between their agony and tears and, and the yelling was that they wanted you to be something different. They wanted you to behave a certain way. They wanted you to do something, and you, you just wouldn't do it. And there was something in you that you wanted your parents, them, to do, do or stop doing, and they just wouldn't, and it killed the relationship. Many of us have seen men power up and destroy a woman's self-image and self-esteem and dignity. We have seen people belittle or criticize others to the point they have no confidence in themselves. We've seen people shame their children until they're afraid to be around their mom and dad. We've seen women who have such high expectations of their daughters and their words just destroy what's going on in the hearts of their daughters. When you want something from someone, whether it's your parents or your husband or your wife or your son or daughter, you want something from this family member bad, badly enough, you can lose perspective and Oftentimes, if you truly dig, what you discover is what's really going on is that you want something from them so that, so that you'll feel better. Some of you, your, your parents, a spouse, they wanted something from you so that they would feel better about themselves because in their minds, you were or you are a reflection of them. Maybe, maybe it's you. But deep down, you want something from a spouse or from children or a family members so that if you're really honest, it's so that you'll feel prouder, so that you'll look better in front of your peers because you'll think you'll be happier or more fulfilled once they give or once they give into what you want. In our desire to get what we want, if we want it badly enough, we can easily have the potential to destroy another person. You've seen it and some of us have experienced it. Is, and then here's how we defend, and, and, and in doing this, or in acknowledging this, what well, we have to acknowledge that some of us may be in the process of doing this very thing. Maybe even unintentionally, unintentionally carrying on generational trauma. And here's how we defend it. I just want the best. I just want the best for him. I just want the best for her. I just want my wife to reach her full potential. I just want my husband to reach their full potential. I want my kids to reach their full potential. And and if you're not careful, you lie to yourself. Because it's not really about them. It's about you. And whether you deserve it or not is secondary. James boils it down to this. You want something, you're not getting it, so you're mad. And can you imagine what would happen in our homes and in our families if we could just own that one idea? He says you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. And so we're right back to where we began. So we're going to do a little application and then we'll get back to the passage. But this is just too important to blow, blow past. And I'm telling you from experience, if, 
if in the middle of a conflict or even before it begins, if you can just pause and take a deep breath and recognize that part of what I'm feeling right now is I'm not getting what I want. Recognizing that can be a game changer. If everybody in the family can pause long enough and recognize that there's something that I want and I'm not getting it, it can completely change how conflict plays out in your family. If in the middle of an argument or conflict, you would look at that person and go, hey, time out. Part of the problem right now is I'm not getting what I want. Honey, before we go on, I want you to know part of the problem is I'm not getting what I want. And imagine if your parent or your wife or your husband or your teenage son or daughter were to respond, well, another part of the problem is I'm not getting what I want either. I mean, it's a knockdown, drag out, maybe on the verge of losing control, and suddenly you just remember this crazy sermon and something about James, and it dawns on you, wait, part of the problem, not all of it, not saying there aren't things that need to be addressed, not saying avoid conflict, I'm just saying the root of the problem is I'm not getting what I want. Now, someone is listening and thinking, man, I wish my parents were hearing this message, or I wish my husband or my wife or my brother or my sister, I wish my kids were in big church today, but there you go again. It's them. They need to hear this sermon. James is going, really? So we're going to practice saying this. Really simple. Just repeat after me. Do you know what part of the problem is? You repeat. (laughs) Do you know what part of the problem is? I'm not getting what I want. Do you know what part of the problem is I'm not getting what I want? Can you imagine what would happen in your home and your relationships if this becomes a habit? Now, to help us with this, I'm going to poke just at the married couples for just a moment. But let's say there are problems in your marriage, which, by the way, there are no marriage problems. There are only single people problems, and they get married. Okay, uh, that, that's, why for so, that's why for those of you that are single, you have no idea, you don't realize it, but your life is so much simpler. Because when you're single, you can change roommates, you can change jobs, change apartments, go wherever you want, you can change everything around you the way you want it, and nobody's going to give you a hard time, and, but then you get married, and suddenly it's like, oh no, like she's this, and he's this, and, and James would go, no, it's you, two yous got married with single people problems, and their preferences, and their idiosyncrasies, and their selfishness, and everything, so single people, you can picture someone else in your family, um, uh, with whom you have conflict, but for married people, for married couples, let's pretend, let's pretend the circle, the pie of conflict, that it represents all of your marriage problems, the entirety of problems in your relationship. Now imagine I had this on a piece of paper in front of you, and then I said, now I just want you to just take a marker, and I want you to draw a slice of this pie that is yours, that this represents you. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big slice. I mean, maybe you're almost perfect. It's like just 2%. You know, it's 98% his fault. You know, I, and I know a pastor who does this consistently in marriage counseling. And guess what? Not one single man or woman will ever draw a slice. Why? For the same reason you wouldn't either. Because it's them, okay? Because if you have to, if you end up drawing a slice... The problem is then you have to be nice because as soon as you even own part of the problem, 
Suddenly your energy, you're litigating, you're arguing, you're bulldozing. The moment you own any of it, you lose part of your argument and part of your leverage and you lose part of your ability to try and convince and to try to change the other person. If I draw a slice on this pie, then suddenly I have to focus on my slice and I would rather focus on you. And I would rather blame you. You never, you always, you should, you promise. And you, you and I, we feel so empowered when it's someone else's to blame. But the moment, the moment, even an itty-bitty slice of this is me. I'm not so empowered. And James would say, that's my point. Now let me just go ahead and say it for some of you. But Chad, he promised. I mean, what I'm wanting is not unusual. He said, for better, for worse, or Chad... When we started out, she was like this, she changed, or my kids promised, and we said, if we pay for this, we'll pay for this, if you do this, and we, prom- we did, but they didn't hold up their end of the deal, it still applies. I want you to keep your promise, and I'm not getting what I want. I want you to fulfill our marriage vow the way I perceive fulfilling a marriage vow. I'm not getting what I want. I want you to do what you said, what you would do, and I'm not getting what I want. So, so Chad, to, to say that it's just not fair. But you ever notice we only throw down the not fair card when it benefits us? Uh, you've never sat in the parking lot or at the store or at the mall during the holiday season pounding your steering wheel because you got in and pulled right into a great parking spot while somebody else had been circling for 10 minutes. It's like, oh, I'm so angry. I got into this spot. It's not fair. And they're still having to circle. Like that, it just It doesn't happen. And I'm not trying to be insensitive, but even in the most difficult, in the most difficult and extreme circumstances, like how many times he said he'd quit drinking? How many times she said she'd be on time? I caught them with porn. They hurt me. If you only knew, it's still at least part of the problem is that I want something from him, or I want something from her, I want something from them, something they promised or that I deserved and I'm not getting it. So I'm frustrated or I'm mad. And James doesn't end there. He says, you do not have because you don't ask God. Now, if you're not a Christian, basically everything that we've said up to this point, you can just go home and do. Your life, your family will be better. You can go home and do this for free. But if you're a Jesus follower, a Christian that's defined by faith, by your faith in seeking to do what Jesus has called you to do and called to be. This is the brother of Jesus saying the reason that you don't have is because you don't ask God. Now this, this is huge because what he's saying is, James is saying before you go raging or go roaring in or sulking around or I'm going to make him ask 20 times before I tell him what's really bothering me, before you do any of that, James says, has it occurred to you to get on your knees and say, God, I want my family member to whatever it is. God, I want my sibling, I want my dad, I want my mom to whatever it is. God, I want my husband, I want my wife, whatever it is. God, I want my teenage son to get better friends. God, I want my daughter to break up with that idiot. God, I know you created him, but maybe you weren't paying attention when he got minted. And so, and this is so important. James is saying, has it occurred to you that before you go trying to extract from someone else something for your benefit, because there's always a level, some level of selfish element 
in all of our fighting, complaining, and arguing. Maybe half a percent, but it's there. He says, before you go nuclear or totally withdraw or become passive-aggressive, has it occurred to you to get on your knees, pour your heart out to your father, and say, God, there's something that I want for my sibling, my father, my mother, my kids, my wife, my husband, and I'm not getting it. He says, has that ever occurred to you? To which we say, no, because usually I'm just so mad about it, and if I pray, I pray at God, like God, change him, change her, help him to start when... When I pray, it's, God, would you please make them do the stuff that I think that they should do? And James is saying, has it ever occurred to you that what you want, you aren't getting because you're trying to squeeze it out of somebody that they actually may not be able to give it to you anyways? They don't have it in them. You do, you have not because you haven't asked God. And so this is so powerful that before you confront that you would force yourself to get on your knees and ask God, God, I have these feelings. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do with these feelings. There's something I want. There's something that I feel that I need. Even something that I feel like I deserve and I'm not getting it. And I don't know what to, what, what to do about this. And when you do this, do you know what happens? When you begin to bring this little piece of the pie that is yours, all of a sudden you begin to focus more on that and less on the other person. And the conversations just go better. Because you don't surrender to them your potential for happiness because you've embraced that you're part of the problem. I'm not getting what I want. And I'm beginning to understand that part of what I want, this other person may not actually be able to give. That I've somehow been trying to wring out of you what people think about me. Somewhere along the way, I began trying to wring out of you what I knew you didn't have to give before we got married. And if I'm honest, deep down, I thought once, or I thought deep down, once we got married, you would change. Or I would change you. And that didn't go as planned. Or I thought once we got married, you would never change. But you have changed. And I didn't want you to change, but that's my issue. Or I thought if we raised our kids a certain way, it would guarantee the results that I wanted. A plus B equals C. But it didn't work out that way. I, it's like, but I did my part. Why didn't it work? And then we ended up becoming a bulldozer. Or we just withdraw because we feel like a failure as a parent. And then he goes on to the part that we just don't like. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He says, Christ followers, God followers, take a deep breath and pray and give less time to planning your approach and more time to asking God to examine your heart. Allow God to first help you really grapple with what is it that you want and why? And in relationship, what are you expecting of him or expecting to her, of her? And are you trying to wring your happiness out of their behavior? First, take that too and grapple with God. And in some cases, God's going to give you what you want. But in other cases, he isn't because God's not going to mess you up by giving you everything you want. So that's when you go back to God and go, God, okay, I don't think she has it in her. I don't think he has it in him to give me what I want. He's not going to turn out like I wanted him to turn out. And James says, have you taken this to God and can you take no for an answer? Because 
And can you own your part of it? Can you decide to hand them the responsibility and the pressure of trying to make you happy? Now here's the question that we're going to end with. Who in your family is potentially suffering because you're not getting your way? Who in your family feels the constant pressure to change? The pressure to behave, the pressure to start, the pressure to stop, the pressure to work harder, the pressure to get skinnier, the pressure to work out more. Who, who is feeling that pressure or suffering because you aren't getting your way? And what would happen in your family today with your dad or your mom or your husband, your wife, your son or your daughter? And they may be grown and gone. For some of us, we're old enough that realistically we could have a 21, a 22, a 30-year-old kid out there who's still trying to make us happy. They're still living with the expectations that you laid on them before they left home. And every time they're with you, they're thinking, I'm not living up to it. I'm not measuring up. And it's your issues, not theirs, but they don't know that. Who out there may be suffering because... You maybe have refused to own the fact that it has more to do with you than it has to do with them. So what could you do today, before the sun sets today, through a message, a letter, a phone call, an email, a lunch, an appointment, to begin to take that unnecessary and inappropriate burden off of them? Do you know why you quarrel and fight in your family? Because there's something you want and you're not and do you know why they fight and quarrel back? Because there's something that they want, they're not getting it. And so in the ideal family, and we've talked, there's, the, there's this gap between real and ideal. In the ideal family where men and women really are seeking to know God and follow Christ, there is a pause. There is a moment where they come to God and they go, God, before I confront her, because some things need to be confronted before I address this issue with him, because there are issues that need to be addressed. Before I launch into that, God, I just want to have clarity in my mind. What is it that I want and why? I want the what I want part to be dealt with you, with you before I take it to them. And God, before I say anything, if I'm to say anything at all, help me to see what my part is in this conflict. Help me to own my part so that I don't blame them for my part, my preferences, my idiosyncrasies, something possibly connected to my own family of origin or even generational trauma or fear. God do in me what you need to do in me before I try to squeeze out of people that I love something that only you can give me. And my hope for you is that this would begin a brand new habit for you. So the band is, they're going to come back up and they're going to do the song again, Run to the Father. Because it's a fitting way for us to end. Because every one of us, every one of us, we come into this world broken at one level or another. It usually reveals itself about the age of two. When we don't get what we want, so we get belligerent or we throw a tantrum. I know we don't believe we ever did that as adults, right? Uh, ever see a two or three-year-old, how they respond if a toy gets taken from them, they don't get their way? It's not pretty. But as we get older, it's a part of us that honestly, it never really fully goes away, ever. But there are some things, some expectations that we put on others that again, it's really about us. And sometimes those expectations are because of our temperaments and our preferences. And sometimes it's from our family of origin or a place of wounding. However, there are also expectations that are reasonable and they're right. 
that, some, that someone, especially a family member, would never lie to us, but they did. That they would be faithful and loyal to us, and that, but they let us down. That they would never deceive us, but they have. But no matter the category, as I talk this morning, as James says, we do best when we take this to God first in raw, authentic honesty. And I feel this song just so wonderfully captures what the core of what we talked about this morning. It begins with these words, I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. I see it now. I'm laying it down. I know that I need you. And I run to the Father, the perfection of Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. There's no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again. And some of you have been carrying the weight of unmet expectations for a long time. And it's created conflict. And it's robbed you of the potential for a level of happiness and joy in your life, in your relationships, and at least partly because people will always disappoint us. And there will be always be others that we disappoint. But in the end, the opinion that matters most is that of a God who loves you deeply. And he loves us in spite of all of our quirks and flaws. And my hope is that today that knowing the source of conflict and how to respond to it can begin to transform, bring positive transformation to you and your relationships. So just take a moment to just, again, absorb the words of this song, sing along if you want to, and then I'll wrap us up. Let me pray for you. Father, I, for those right now, they're just mostly conflict-free. I'm just so grateful, and I thank you, and I pray that you would continue that in their life and that they would be strength for the people in their lives that are facing difficult things. But Father, for the rest of us, we're, we've got people in our lives and our family. Father, some of these conflicts may be deep-rooted and long. So we're going to need your help. So Father, I pray for everyone that would lean into this either as the recipient met expectations that shouldn't be placed on them in the first place for the giver for those of us that have conflicts it just seems like it will never end it's just always going to be Father I, I pray for your spirit to show up Jesus said you would send help for your Holy Spirit I believe you have I believe that he's with us and so Father I pray for everyone listening to me that they need to have a conversation they need to send a message they need to initiate they may need to own some of their they've put on someone. I pray that you give them the strength, the wisdom, the courage to do that and to do it soon. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.